Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. And since I joined the board of the Franco-American Center in Manchester, board members, especially Tim Beaulieu, have told me I really needed to check out the Museum of Working Culture in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. Well, recently, I did make that trip, along with Mike and his wife, Morel, and very importantly, our assistant editor, Mike's four-year-old son, Bryce. And it was an awesome trip. Absolutely cool. And uh, joining us today, we are very excited to welcome uh, to the podcast the director of the Museum of Work and Culture, Anne Conway. Now, in addition to being the director of the Museum of Work and Culture, Anne is also heavily involved in the Franco Root Project, which I'm very much looking forward to talking about. So, Anne, thank you so much for joining the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Now, before we get going into the museum too much or talking about the Franco Root, I'm kind of curious about your story. So, where are you from? Sure. So, uh, I am actually from Quebec City. I have been living uh, in Cumberland, Rhode Island, little um, you know town next to Woonsocket, sure. for um, well, 36 years. So, my husband and I just celebrated our 36th wedding anniversary last month. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, so now uh, Rhode Island is my home, although um, Quebec will always have my heart. Of course. Um, my, my family um, is still in Quebec City, so I travel um, up there on a regular basis. Which is wonderful because I get to keep up with my uh, with my French, awesome. which is my first language, sure. and um, still trying to you know get that English language you know a little bit better all the time. <laughs> but I guess when, <laughs> when you're born, when you know when when once you're born with a with a language, it's always your first language is your, sure. you know, your mother tongue. So yes, um, so and I've been with the Museum of Working Culture since its opening in 1997. So. Um, I um, studied at Laval University, uh, and then uh, once uh, I got married, I decided to continue my studies here at uh, Rhode Island College. Wanted to, to really um, get, I was already um, in, in the teaching um, field, and I wanted to uh, become a French teacher. Thought that it would make okay. sense uh, for me, so um, got a, um, a degree in, in French, and um, then heard about this project of the Museum of Working Culture, and I thought, well, you know, that would be wonderful. And you know, once you work in a museum, you 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 teach. That's what museums are about: education. Sure. And um, so it made a lot of sense for me. I applied, um, and I got. I was uh, at the time I had um, three small children, and um, I wanted just a part-time position. And I knew I wanted a foot in the in this place. I wanted you to be here, so I started a store manager. Um, believe it or not, as <laughs> a very um, that's awesome. Yep, just just very uh, part-time position, but with a uh, an emphasis on getting the right uh, books and the right products to really reflect the museum. So got into you know the marketing of the place, and very soon after that, I became co-director of the museum, and I've been um, director now. Uh, well, on my own for five years but um the museum is actually part of the Rhode Island Historical Society sure so um I'm a Rhode Island Historical Society uh employee I guess and uh we work very we have other museums in the province area and um it's a just a, a great way to um it's a great association because we have so many 
people that are so resourceful, you know, in the curatorial department and research. And, uh, you know, we have a wonderful library on Hope Street in Providence. So it really complements what we do here with the Museum of Art and Culture. That's awesome. Now, obviously, we went down to the museum, which was absolutely a blast for us. Uh, now, is it fair to say that this, this museum is basically a museum to the French-Canadian immigrant culture down in the Woonsocket area? Yes, it is. Um, although we, we do talk about, you know, the, the, the story of immigration, which also includes other ethnic groups, because sure. certainly the French Canadians were not the only group to settle in this area, but they were the largest. So the story is told through the French Canadian experience. Um, by 1920, the city of Winsocket um, was 70% French. Wow. So um, when you worked in the mills in um, in, in Woonsocket, uh, you really had to learn French if you didn't learn if you didn't know French. And especially um, at the beginning of the 20th century, a lot of the mill owners uh, in, in in the area were from France and Belgium. So it's something that you know we didn't see in other mill towns sure. in New England. Woonsocket is very unique with the fact that um, we had a governor, Governor Arm Posier, who um, traveled to France and did. Uh, entice some of those um, manufacturers from the north of France and from Belgium to come to Winsocket and open the manufacturers. The manpower already spoke French, so that was you know really why the French was kept for so long. You really spoke French from the top down in Winsocket. So Winsocket had the you know really was was called the most French city in the U.S. Um, around 1920. That is super unique because, you know, you hear stories, at least coming out of Manchester, I'm from Manchester, where the, a lot of, for the lot of workers, there was almost like a ceiling beyond which they really couldn't attain because of the fact that only to a certain point did people speak French. After that, you had to have fluent English if you wanted to be promoted. Uh, so that's okay. kind of cool that yeah. from, from the top down that, you know, the Franco... Yeah. Franco's mm-hmm. all the way through. Now, now, where did the idea for this, you talked about you've been around since the beginning. Where did the idea come from that, hey, we need a, a museum dedicated to the immigrant experience, you know, highlighting the yeah. French-Canadian immigration? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea of having a museum was really born out of the centennial anniversary of the city of Winsocket in 1988. So um, there was a, you know, there were year-long celebrations, and um, the uh, the city really felt at the time that there was a need to have a permanent place to tell the story of um, the workers, of the people who came, who immigrated to Winsocket, and who really made a better life for themselves and their children. People started to get together, um, scholars, uh, museum developers, teachers, professors. They, they came with a, up with a basic story. The project dragged. There were some financial difficulties here. We had a banking crisis in 1990. The project was kind of put to, on to you know, the back burner. Sure. And then um, the city, it was about 1995, the city turned to the Rhode Island Historical Society um, to develop a partnership. And uh, at the time, the director of the um, Historical Society was Al Kleiberg, um, already had a lot of experience with museums and experience with, you know, writing large grants um, for support. So um, that's really what happened. The, the society took the management. Uh, however, the the, uh, the city of Winsocket owns the building. So we are in an old mill building, as you know, yep. and um, the building is still owned by the city of Winsocket, which is, again, a great uh, partnership um, for us to have, um, you know, the city's help and the Rhode Island Historical Society's help. 
That is super neat. Now, I did want to start getting into some of the exhibits themselves. Uh, and right off the bat, like just when you, you, know, you leave the lobby, you're about to start your journey through this amazing museum. Uh, like the first real place you, you stop is like a recreated cabin in Quebec, which I thought yeah. was pretty cool. Now, can you talk about the, the city? Obviously, this is a museum uh, dedicated to the immigrant experience here in the States. Uh, but just the impact of having that very first exhibit be before they even decide to leave, I thought was interesting. It's really where we uh, talk about the push and pull. So uh, what happened, what was going on in Quebec and what was going on here and why people made this the decision. You know, the decision to leave was not an easy decision. People, um, you know, knew that if they came to New England, came to the United States, they could make more money, sometimes more money that they could spend. Uh, and on the farm, when the farms were not, producing well, the families were really, really large. Um, for some, it was an easy decision to make, and some others, well, you know, they didn't want to leave their um, their survivance. So um, one of the theme, the major theme of the museum is that survivance. So, um, you know, the fear of losing your culture, your faith, and your language was certainly, you know, at the top of, of the list um, for for people. But those who came to the United States uh, brought their, their survivance with them. Recruiters uh, often were sent to small villages to bring workers to their cities. So uh, it was done in Manchester, it was done here in in Woonsocket, and um, they were very successful at, at convincing so many people because we estimated about a million people left the uh, the province of Quebec, probably around 1865 to 1920, to come work in the New England textile city. I thought that was really interesting because the way it's presented is in the form of like a discussion between a couple of people as to whether or not to go down. And honestly, something that I hadn't spent a lot of time considering because we've talked a lot about the survivance that you mentioned on this podcast. Uh, but the whole idea that that was a major issue that was being discussed even before they left, knowing that that was going to be Absolutely. tough once they arrived in the States. Yes, yes, the survivance was already very important for the French Canadians because of being, you know, that minority in, in Canada. Right. So uh, for them to, to leave and, and again, you know, being even, you know, surrounded by um, by the first settlers here, you know, the Yankees and, you know, the English language, you know, la survivance became very important. And uh, that's something that's a theme that you see, as I said, throughout the museum. Sure. And uh, again, it's talked about in our classroom exhibit on the second floor. Now, there's mention in the museum of Fernand Gagnon, somebody we've talked about here, and the whole idea of repatriation. Now, what was that kind of movement about? Well, the repatriation, you know, we don't have too, too much here um, at, at the museum um, about that, uh, but there were certainly um, some farms, some land that was um, offered to people who wanted to go back. Um, this land, um, you know, we heard and read about that very often they were, it was um, was not farmland, it was, it was wood, it was out either, in, you know, in the western Canada or really up north and, you know, very um, difficult for, um, again, for folks to you know, to face. So they, uh, many of people felt like the right thing to do was to, to stay in the United States. Um, there was that back and forth, however, you know, and this is something that, you know, people still talk about. Even some of the, the older residents will remember, um, you know, their 
grandparents, sometimes keeping land up in Canada and going back in the summer and um, and working in the mills at other time of year. So that back and forth went on um, for a very long time. Sure. And now moving on to some of the other exhibits, which I think is really cool. Talks a lot about your museum obviously highlights a lot about uh, kind of what the conditions were, what life was like working in, in these mills. And one of the things that it comes up is the uh, impact of child labor, which, yes. which which absolutely caught my attention. Now, how, how young were these kids? What are we talking about? Well, the kids uh, could be as long as, as young as 11, 12 years old, a century earlier in the time of um, Samuel Slater, who opened the first textile mill here in in Pawtucket, um, children were, you know, used, really, in in the textile industry. Over here, it's a little bit different. Uh, You know, as as you know, kids on the farms always had jobs. Sure. Uh, They pick berries in the summer. They, they, you know, they help with the animals. So it was um, a little, I want to say, almost cultural to involve the family at work um and they still needed to you know make enough money to survive here in the united states so they brought their children very often you know they were jobs offered for the kids you know shorter shifts and you know the the kids would come in Uh, but you know the accident rates were so high and um it certainly was not a place for children uh and Apparently, it was very easy to, you know, you were supposed to be 14, but you could, you know, take somebody else's, you know, birth certificate, one of your older brother, and, and, and show it. And, you know, the foreman might pay attention or might not pay attention. So, yes, you know, children did work in the mills, um, but and it was not until, like, the 1930s that laws against child labor were passed in this country. Gotcha. And... There's a, there is significant discussion in the museum about kind of uh, the working conditions. I saw a reference to something we've talked about here with piecework, um, with something that happened in the mills down there, um, but also you know other items related to you know just their day to day existence. I mean, maybe you could give us a picture of you know what would a day be like? What was it like to to work in these mills? The the hours were very long. Uh, the conditions were difficult because um, well, it was extremely hot. Opening the windows was not an option because you either let too much dry air in, which is very bad for um, the threads. Uh, so you wanted to keep a certain level of humidity, which you know. With that, you sure. get a lot of dust, and the yeah. dust had no place to go, and uh, you know the strong smell of oil and uh you know people develop diseases um lung diseases the machinery was really loud and you didn't have protection for your ears like we do today so you know workers um had hearing issues and um you know there really was not much done to protect workers uh so this is what we also talk about here so the theme goes from you know la survivance theme and then you know we do show that you know people did not completely forget about their their survivance but that fight that they came you know um you know when they first settled which was really to to keep up with their language and their culture and their faith um you know it's not changing gradually and said well you know maybe we need to like really get together and fight for better working conditions. I mean, when you think that a lot of people couldn't read and sure. um, they had instructions on how to shut off the machinery when, you know, somebody's arm would get 
caught in it, but if you can't read and if you've never had training, you know, it becomes a, a real issue. So, um, you know, unions became uh, very instrumental in helping the workers um, not only attain better salaries and better working conditions, but also with um, helping them um, getting their American citizenship so they could um, become, you know, U.S. citizens and be able to vote. Because if you want to have your, you know, your voice heard, you have to be able to to vote at those um, union uh, meetings and and so on. So, uh, yeah, so the, the story of the ITU here, which is the Independent Textile Union, is told through our last exhibit. Yeah, I was about to go there, because there is a lot on the ITU, and there's a, a mention of a strike in 1934. And I was kind of, yes. yeah, mm-hmm. what was that strike about, and what kind of impact did that have on, on the entire town, really? Yeah, the strike was uh, really horrible. Um, it's really depicted in the, uh, the film that we show in the uh, ITU hall. The National Guard uh, was called, and um, a, uh, a young man, a passerby, was uh, was killed during um, the the fight. So it was uh, it, it was certainly uh, something that people. Um, you know, remembered for for a very long time, but that was as a reaction of a, a large mill in the area closing. Gotcha. Now, before we move on from kind of like the day to day working in the mill, one thing I did have to point out because I thought it was really really cool was the fact that your museum makes it very clear um, that there were very much skilled jobs available to these workers. Because I think a lot of times the, the impression a lot of people have is that, you know, these workers, you know, they come from farms, they moved out to these mills. Basically the day they get off a train, they have a job waiting for them, a completely unskilled job waiting for them in a mill and they work that job for the next, you know, 40 years and retire. But it makes it very clear that there were very important, very skilled jobs. And you guys highlight the job of a loom fixer, which I thought was really neat because you yeah. you have a loom, you have a loom fixer's bag, which was awesome for me because my grandfather, my mom's mom, was a loom fixer here in Manchester, which oh, I thought was cool. Oh yeah! Oh my gosh, that was extremely and very important. Um, job and career um we uh yeah and, and there was there was room for advancement in the mills um certainly when we uh you probably visited our triple decker which is the um the inside of a of a home that is reflected of a you know a, a, an apartment of about 1925 1926 and you can see within this apartment things that people could start affording once you you know you were not necessarily an immigrant that just came in, but you've been around for five, ten years, and you were able to get up in the ranks, maybe become a foreman, or learning a skill that paid more. So, no, you're absolutely right. There was, um, you know, room for advancement, and, um, you know, people could afford to buy, you know, a, a washing machine or even a telephone. Yeah, and that's awesome. So, Yeah. Now, you got in your museum again, besides just the work, it highlights some of the aspects of life kind of outside the job, but that were super influenced by the job. And I was thinking of, you know, there's mention of company housing, and there's mention of kind of baseball almost serving uh, a... a, a purpose for the mill owners when they expose their their workers to to uh, to baseball. You just talk about a little bit about yes. how even the life outside of their day to day job once they left their shift for the day was still super influenced by by the mills. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the uh, a lot of the mills had their own baseball team, and uh, that was you know number one, America's number one last time. I think it's might still be. I don't know if it is. I think football probably took <laughs> over baseball now, but you know certainly um, uh, baseball was uh, was very big. And uh, after work or on the weekends, the mills uh, competed, and um, yeah, it was. A great way for the mill owners to, you know, keep that sense of uh, developing that sense of belonging to your, um, to, to your company. Uh, and, uh, but what's really amazing is that out of these teams, some incredible baseball players were born. You might have heard of Napoleon Lajoie. Absolutely. Napa Joy, yeah. Yeah. Who had a baseball team named after him, became a you know, professional player, uh, still holds some records today that have never been beat. Uh, he's in the Cooperstown Hall of Fame. Uh, we also have, uh, had another Hall of Famer, um, uh, Gabby Harnett and Clem Clem Labine. So um, yeah, some of those uh, guys were really exposed to to the sports through their um, through their work through their 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 teams. So uh, it was uh, it was something that everyone enjoyed. And your museum also talks about another major topic that we've talked a lot about on this podcast: um, the whole idea of like a, the nativism issue. And there was kind of like a backlash against a lot of these immigrants coming um, into the States. They were not always welcome. Um, Certainly, uh, you know, we had other groups who had settled here before. Um, The uh, Irish immigrants had come uh, probably 10 years before the first uh, French-Canadian immigrants started to come. They were here to... um, dig the Blackstone Canal, which the canal was only used for about 10 years prior to the arrival of the railroad. But they had settled in the area. Um, they already had a, a church, a Catholic church here in uh, in Woonsocket. Uh, once the French came, they wanted to have their French Catholic church. So that was, you know, in, instead of joining um, the other parish, they felt like they needed to have their own parish. So, you know, there was certainly that the division. Um, we don't have any recorded um, incidents of um, Ku Klux Klan, like I think um, sure. happened in Maine and maybe in, in New Hampshire, I'm not sure. But um, certainly it was, uh, you know, it, it was it was difficult and... Um, you know, again, it's uh, Winsocket has a lot of very new immigrants coming um, to the city, and um, you know, history repeats itself. I should say. Sure. No, absolutely. <laughs> I think we all agree. Yeah. Now, it in you. I mean, you mentioned obviously the establishing of the church, and one issue that's I guess kind of unique to the Rhode Island story was the whole Sentinel affair. It was mentioned in the museum. Uh, can you tell us a little bit yeah. about what? Because I think that probably deserves an entire episode on its own. Uh, but I'm curious as to if you just give us a brief what the Sentinel issue was. Oh, the Sentinel, sure. Um, so during um, probably started around 1922, 1923, the Bishop of Providence, who's Bishop Hickey, uh, decided that. Um, 
there would be a special collection uh, that would take place in church on Sunday, and um, it was really a um, a big fundraising project that the diocese would do to raise funds to build some higher education schools, such as over here, we have Mount St. Charles Academy in the city, uh, LaSalle in Providence, and he wanted to to build these uh, very big Catholic um, high school, private high schools. And, um, you know, the the French Canadians here gave uh, money each week to keep up with the education of their children in the local parochial schools. And they knew that if they would give their money to the bishop, that those schools were not going to continue their tradition of, you know, having a half day in French sure. and learning your, you know, your uh, catechism in French and Vistar uh, du Canada, and it was going to be really uh, an English English high school. So they decided not to give. And um, it became a a real uh, debate between the church and the the French Canadians. So uh, a group of people uh, got together and formed what they called, they called themselves the Sentinelists. And um, they even had, it was very much of an underground movement with, they had a newspaper and uh, they fought, uh, you know, also very openly against the bishop. They um, they decided to. Um, it's a very long story, sure. but they decided, like as you said, we could have a, a, a and we do have a, a specialist here. If you're ever interested, Mr. Paul Bourget um, has written uh, about something. But yeah, I'm gonna grab his contact uh, for sure. Yes, yes. Um, so the the group decided to sue the bishop, and um, that didn't work. And they were uh, many. People, many parishioners were excommunicated. And this, the most, there were several French Canadian parishes in, in Woonsocket, but St. Anne's Parish is where the, really, where the, that, that fight was going on. And uh, many of the par- parishioners uh, were excommunicated. And, um, you know, back in those days, if you lost your, if you were excommunicated, really, you lost your identity. It was, um, you know, like having your identity stolen today. It was just right. extremely you know, uh, devastating. So, um, in the end, um, all the parishioners, um, had to obey by the bishop and apologize, uh, to the Pope to be, uh, reinstated into the Catholic church. Yeah. Well, like you mentioned, we definitely need to get a whole episode of that because it's super fascinating, super complex. Uh, obviously it takes place in Rhode Island, but it has major impact well beyond Rhode Island. Um, for many people, which is super fascinating. Um, but yes. uh, but going back just kind of as we wrap up the discussion of like the mill and the mill life, uh, when did the mills really start to decline? The mills declined, um, well, we kind of had two declines here. Um, so very late, uh, you know, 19th, you know, like probably like 18... 90s uh, when the cotton industry really moved south. Gotcha. Um, so the yeah the, the cotton mills um, had closed and um, I talked a little bit earlier about um, about Aaron Potier. Aaron Potier was the first uh, French Canadian um, governor of the state of Rhode Island. But prior to being governor, I'd gone to France and brought the the French.
French industrialists. So they came here in the very early part of um, the 1900s, and they opened these mills all over the city. And I really created almost a second industrial revolution for Woonsocket. So, awesome. you know, people got back to work, and uh, we were creating some of the best um, worsteds. So um, it was all uh, wool garments, and, you know, that, that was... Um, created so wool was shipped from all over the world and um you know they were um really work for for everyone again um and then we saw a decline uh towards you know the end of the you know 1920s early 1930s and then again you know the war brought in some you know additional production sure. so you saw a lot of the mills reopening during um world war ii um to um you know, help during the, the war efforts. And we had um, even some of the um, decoys um, during war, that were used during World War Two by uh, the Ghost Army. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Absolutely. Ghost Army. Absolutely, yeah, that's yeah, really fascinating. The army that was used to, yeah, yeah, to deceive Germans, um, um, Hitler's army, um, were, you know, made here at the Alice Mills. So some uh, fake tanks and yeah. balloon bears, you know, yeah, it was really... Um, very interesting in that that uh, information was classified until I believe the 1980s. So um, there's a great film that was uh, produced uh, by a, a local um, producer, uh, which is called the, the Ghost Army of World War Two. It talks about the Alice Mill. And what happened to once these mills basically kind of don't rebound to their pre-war life? What happened to all these mill workers here in Woonsocket? Well, you know, um, Woonsocket's economy changed gradually to more of a service um, economy. Um, luckily, here we are the home of um, CVS Corporation. So um, we, it's right here in the, in the city of Woonsocket, employs thousands and thousands of people. Um, and um, so, yeah, gradually some people, I mean, you know, it's, it's a very, I guess, gradual um, happening but um, it's uh, the city smaller certainly now than it was. Uh, we used to be a city probably in the, in the, the textiles heyday, you know, 50, 55,000. Now we're about a city of 40,000 people. Um, so, um, you know, the community has, has changed. We do have one mill that still produces um, some um, blankets. They make, um, it's called the Brickle um, Group. They've been here uh, in the city for probably over 100 years, and they make um, all their, uh, the garments that they make, well, it's, they do um, blankets for the U.S. and uh, Army and, and Navy. They make uh, berets also for the Army, and they even make the inside of uh, professional baseballs. Huh. And they are uh, everything is made uh, from recycled material, so they're very much uh, you know into um, sort of the, the new you know the new sure. ways of, of doing textile. So it's a really amazing company. That's very cool. Now again, this museum is an amazing place. I got to tell you, the entire time I walked through, I was just thinking how awesome it was. Uh, to have kind of a museum dedicated to, you know, my family, to telling my story, even though I'm not, obviously I'm not from uh, Woonsocket, but a lot of the stories that you that you see in, in these exhibits uh, were very much stories that were told to me growing up in Manchester. And it was, so that was just uh, I'm, so I'm neat. Glad, yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. That's, I mean, I, I do feel that way. I feel like 
um, so many people can see themselves in the walls of the museum. Uh, you know, your story, whether you're, you know, you're French-Canadian, you know, um, of heritage like you, or maybe you're someone whose, you know, parents were active in the unions, or right. perhaps, you know, you're, you're an immigrant, even from other, from an, another ethnic group. I think that, you know, the story is, is well told. And um, it's, uh, and, and we, we get a lot of visitors from, from Quebec, who uh, very often are surprised, you know, didn't know that we had all these enclaves of French-Canadian culture all over New England. And uh, I know you want to talk about La Franco-Route, but that is uh, one of the goals of the, of the Franco-Route, to, um, to make um, these, uh, these cities and towns known to the, the Francophone um, communities. Jordan, this is an awesome transition. What, what is the Franco-Route? So the Funkelhut is um, is really a project to link the cities of uh, in New England who share the same heritage, um, the same stories, and um, it was easy to identify the, the, the big the big cities. You know, we are you know we have uh, Lewiston, Auburn, we have. Bitterford in Maine, Manchester, New Hampshire, Woonsocket, Rhode Island. So we started to um, talk a few years back. Uh, even the conversation about the Franco route started, believe it or not, in 2008. Wow. During the uh, 400th anniversary of the city of Quebec. Many of us throughout New England, with the help of the Quebec delegation, we worked at um, dedicated a monument to the city of Quebec from the people of New England as a gift to Quebec for the 400th anniversary. We have a beautiful monument. Many people don't know about it, but it's right on the side of, you know, on the, on the, um, the St. Lawrence River. As you leave the city and follow the Boulevard Champlain, if you're familiar with Quebec, between... Um, the, the old city and uh, the Quebec Bridge. So there's a beautiful monument there. So we started to talk, you know, there was a lot of momentum and we thought, boy, wouldn't that be great to continue working together, the cities, and, and, and create um, itineraries and create this route that people could could follow and learn about the um, the immigration to Quebec, you know, the, the, the Francophone, the Quebecois immigration to New England. So um, two years ago, we uh, met again uh, during the um, second meeting of Les Villes Francophones et Francophiles d'Amérique. Have you heard about this network no. that we are part of? I have okay, not. well, Manchester is part of that, and so is Lewiston and Woonsocket and Bitterford. So um, the mayor of Quebec City um, thought that it would be a good idea for uh, mayors from all over the Americas to get together um, if you have some type of French um, history to your city. So it can be French Canadian history, or it could be French from French explorers. It could be any story that you want to share. So um, if you Google uh, Francophone and Francophile Network, um, you can find this website where you will see all the cities that are part of this association, this network. Uh, we have about probably 125 cities throughout Canada and the United States. So um, 
like I said, we had a we had a meeting two years ago, two summers ago in Quebec City, and through again the Quebec delegation, um, the city of uh, Lewiston and the city of Woonsocket, we uh, signed an agreement to start working on this Francourt project. So since then, we have reached to uh, Manchester and to Biddeford, and um, we are working uh, to develop a website that is going to um, let visitors, um, you know, bring visitors to the website to read about the French-Canadian or the French history of each um, city. The website will also highlight the points of interest for each city. We'll also present some itineraries so you can follow the Sancourout, whether you come from the south and you want to follow it from Woonsocket and going up the coast to uh, Lewiston and maybe continue on to Quebec City, or you want to start in Quebec City and go through Maine and New Hampshire and, and come to uh, Woonsocket will give people different options. So it is, um, you know, it's a route that already exists. You know, you can follow, you know, Route <laughs> 95 or 93 and, and see our places. But we want to make it a little bit more organized for visitors to, um, you know, to, to really plan their trip and to know where to go and course many of our small museums and small organizations we're not open seven days a week you know here at the museum we're lucky to be open 12 months a year and you know we're closed on mondays but we're open six days a week it's not the same for every organization so this functional we really um you know will give you all the information about you know when um uh, sites are open and where to go to eat and um uh, you know where there are bike paths and places where you can go on your, you know, kayaking, and um, I think it's going to be really, I think it's going to be interesting for people. I'm thinking people from Quebec, again, who don't necessarily know uh, the story of, of immigration that happened um, there uh, and where the, the people went. So I think it'll be very interesting for them to come and, and discover that. Awesome. Well, thank you so very much, and for coming on the podcast with us today. Uh, but before we let you go, I want to make sure we can give all our listeners uh, kind of some information on you know how they can find out more about your museum. So if somebody's interested in checking out the museum, where, where would you send them? So um, our website is www.rihs.org. So it's for Rhode Island Historical Society.org. So we have all um, our information, hours of operation, actually working on a new website. So this one is the, the new one that's going to roll out with, uh, within the next three or four months. We'll give a lot more information on the museum per se, but um, it's a good way to start. And of course, if people, people can always call us for other information at 401-769-9675. No, that's awesome. No. Is there guided tours? Are there events at this museum? So um, we do have um, guided tours for groups of 10 or more. Nice. We are presently uh, developing a uh, an audio tour 
which probably within the next six to eight months will be ready for people to follow. As you know, the uh, most of the exhibit are translated into French, so people can follow the tour and uh, read uh, the panels in, in French. Uh, we have events, of course, throughout the year. Uh, we have not as big as the Manchester Poutine uh, <laughs> event, but we do, we do have a Poutine event here too. So, um, in um, each month, each March, I should say each year during the month of March, uh, we celebrate La Francophonie in New England, uh, and it's celebrated throughout New England. And uh, here at the museum, we do an event, which is usually the third Sunday of March called Bonjour Printemps, and uh, that's when we feature our Putin competition. So last year, we had seven restaurants and food trucks competing. Uh, we had a it was a sold-out event. We had to turn people away, which nice. we don't like to do. But <laughs> being in March, uh, we can't really be outside because of the weather. Sure. So, um, But uh, we'll announce the event again probably early in January, so people need to get their tickets early. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for joining us on the podcast, Dan. This is really – it's an awesome my, museum. It was very, very cool to be able to talk to you. Well, my pleasure. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair. To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.